to Ezra chapter 10. <clears throat> if you're using your pew Bible, you'll find this on pages 648 and 649. <clears throat> it's also in large print sheets. <clears throat> Ezra chapter 10, reading it in its entirety. This is the word of God, Ezra chapter 10. Now, while Ezra was praying, and while he was confessing, weeping, and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept very bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Now therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them according to the advice of my master and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, For this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leaders of the priests, the Levites, and all Israel swear an oath that they would do according to this word. So they swore an oath. Then Ezra rose up from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib, And when he came there, he ate no bread and drank no water, for he mourned because of the guilt of those from the captivity. And they issued a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the descendants of the captivity, that they must gather at Jerusalem, and that whoever would not come within three days according to the instructions of the leaders and elders, all his property would be confiscated, and he himself would be separated from the assembly of those from the captivity. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month, on the twentieth of the month. And all the people sat in the open square of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of heavy rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have transgressed and have taken pagan wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now therefore, make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the pagan wives. And all the assembly answered and said with a loud voice, Yes, as you have said, so we must do. But there are many people. It is the season for heavy rain, and we are not able to stand outside, nor is this the work of one or two days, for there are many of us who have transgressed in this matter. Please, let the leaders of our entire assembly stand, that all those in our cities who have taken pagan wives come at appointed times, together with the elders and judges of their cities, 
until the fierce wrath of our God is turned away from us in this matter. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jehaziah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this, and Meshullam and Shabbatai the Levite gave them support. Then the descendants of the captivity did so, and Ezra the priest, with certain heads of the father's households, were set apart by the father's households, each of them by name, and they sat down on the first day of the tenth month to examine the matter. By the first day of the first month, they finished questioning all the men who had taken pagan wives. And among the sons of the priests who had taken pagan wives, the following were found of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and his brothers, Maaseah, Eliezer, Jareb, and Gedaliah. And they gave their promise that they would put away their wives. And being guilty, they presented a ram of the flock as their trespass offering. Also the sons of Immer, Hanani, and Zebediah, of the sons of Haram, Maaseah, Elijah, Shemaiah, Jehiel, and Uzziah, of the sons of Pasher, Elioenai, Maaseah, Ishmael, Nethanel, Jozebad, and Elisah, also of the Levites, Jozebad, Shimei, Kaliah, the same is Kalita, Pethahiah, Judah, and Eliezer, also of the singers, Eliashib, and of the gatekeepers, Shalom, Telem, and Uri, and others of Israel, of the sons of Parosh, Ramiah, Josiah, Malchiah, Mijamin, Eliezer, Malchijah, and Benaiah, <coughs> of the sons of Elam, Mataniah, Zechariah, Jehiel, Abdi, Jeremoth, and Eliah, of the sons of Zatu, Elioenai, Eliashib, Mataniah, Jeremoth, Zabad, and Azizah, of the sons of Bibai, Jehohanan, Hananiah, Zabai, and Athlai, of the sons of Benai, Meshullam, Malak, Adiah, Jashub, Sheol, and Ramoth, of the sons of Peoth Moab, Adna, Kilo, Benaiah, Maaseah, Mataniah, Bezalel, Binuai, and Manasseh, of the sons of Haram, Eliezer, Ishijah, Malkijah, Shemaiah, Shimeon, Benjamin, Malak, and Shemariah, of the sons of Hashem, Metanai, Metatah, Zabad, Eliphalet, Jeremiah, Manasseh, and Shimei, <clears throat> of the sons of Benai, Maedai, Amram, Uel, Benaiah, Bedeah, Kila, Benaiah, Merimoth, Eliashib, Mataniah, Matanai, Jaisai, Bani, Binuai, Shimei, Shalamiah, Nathan, Adiah, Machnadebai, Shashai, Sherai, Azarel, Shalamiah, Shemariah, Shalom, Amariah, and Joseph. Of the sons of Nebo, Jael, Mattathiah, Zabat, Zabina, Jadai, Joel, and Beniah. All these had taken pagan wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. Well, beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ today, we come to the end of our study here of this book of Ezra, the ten chapters of Ezra. And as we look at chapter 10 then, and we started looking at last week, we see 
<coughs> that Ezra gives the solution to the intermarriage problem. Ezra gives the solution to the intermarriage problem. Now, as we have noted, as we, and we're going to take a brief overview, very brief, of the book as a whole, just to remind us of it. As we have noted, Ezra was a priest and a leader. And we've also noted that the book of Ezra divides neatly into two ba basic parts. The first six chapters, the first act, if we talk about it in terms of a, a play, for example, and then, verse, and then chapters 7 through 10, the second act. So the first act was dealing with events from 536 to 515 B.C. in terms of the rebuilding of the temple. Chapter 1, the Lord stirred up Cyrus the king, so the Jews were enabled to go back with gold and silver to rebuild. In chapter 2, even as we had a list here of people, although somewhat shameful list, as we noted last week, but we'll look at that also a little bit more today, um, chapter 2 was a list of what we might call the heroes of the faith, those who were, who were willing to go back at that time. In chapter 3, the people set up the altar and offered sacrifices, especially, as we noted, because of the fear of the foreign peoples. So, in other words, it was obviously in terms of atonement, but there was also, uh, it, it also was uh, in terms of protection, if you will, by means of the atonement, protection from the foreign peoples. The foundation was laid amidst great fanfare and sacrifice at the end of the chapter. People wept, but then people were shouting for joy at the same time. In chapter 4, the adversaries opposed the temple work after being excluded from it and forced the temple work to come to a halt, to a stop. And then that was a very downside, if you will, very down, uh, very dark time. And for a while then, the people, about 20 years or so, the people weren't working. But then Haggai, we did a series on the prophet Haggai, Haggai and Zechariah stirred up the people. Those two prophets stirred up the people to start building again. You remember Haggai, children? Bags with holes. You remember that? Bags with holes. You, they made, you know, people were materialists. They were all about making money. But as Haggai said, it's like earning all this money and it's putting, putting money into bags with holes. What good does it do you? Obviously, none at all. It's futile. It's in vain. And so Haggai and Zechariah stirred up the people to start building again. And after correspondence, which is very interesting, by the way, this official correspondence, Darius, King Darius, decreed that this work would not be halted, would not be interrupted, but rather encouraged. And then the temple was dedicated with joy and the Passover was kept. So that's the first act. Now we come to the second act, chapters 7 through 10, in terms of reforming and revitalizing the true religion. This has to do with events in 458 BC. So 70 years or so after uh, the end of chapter 6. In chapter 7, Ezra himself, who was committed to God's law, remember that verse in chapter 7 and verse 10, 
which we see Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. And that's the key verse, that Ezra had prepared his heart to seek, to desire the law of the Lord and to do it, to perform it, but then also to apply to others, to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. And so Ezra then got, gets a decree from King Artaxerxes to take uh, more people to Judea and to reinstitute the full service of the temple. <clears throat> In chapter 8, we see a list of the families that appears, along with the fact that the people fasted and prayed and were thus protected on their journey back to Jerusalem. And then chapter 9 then, again, this is... It's kind of the ups and downs, if you will. Chapter 9, after all this excitement, all this joy, what happens? Chapter 9, Ezra discovers the sin of intermarriage with pagan peoples. And as we note it, although all sin is serious, this was particularly serious because it was a threat to the existence of of the covenant community itself. That's the point. And that's why you had this extreme reaction by Ezra in terms of plucking out his hair and so forth. And then he eloquently prays a prayer of repentance. Well, last week then, as we came into chapter 10, we see the first major point is that of repentance. Ezra continued to pray uh, and uh, to make confession. He fasted and mourned because of this great sin. And uh, we drew several, um, we drew several um, lessons uh, from that, including the necessity of repentance and how it must lead to godly sorrow, not just I'm sorry to get, I got caught, but godly sorrow and confession and real repentance. The covenant, of course, forms the context. That's an important theme. There was fear and punishment, fear at violating God's law, fear of his fierce anger, and fear of the outward manifestation, the great rains. But there was also hope. There was also hope. And my friends, I want to remind you again today that there is hope when you turn to God, and this is all because of his great mercy. And then last week we looked at the trials the trials, uh, uh, and uh, we considered then the methodology of church discipline, that it is by a commission or a court. It is done by presbyters or elders, not the people as a whole. And uh, so there's an orderly, also there's an orderly process to this. There was order in the court, not chaos. This was done in front of the temple, a reminder of who the supreme judge is, but also done in the presence of God. We also then noted the importance of church discipline, of course, for God's glory, for the protection of the people, and for the good of the offenders. And one of the things that I mentioned last week, I want to mention it again, and we did not read this list of names last week, but it is striking, isn't it, as you look at this, because in one sense, it's to their shame, isn't it? But on the other hand, these people apparently were repentant. 
And therefore, it is a testimony to the grace of God in their lives in terms of the repentance. And I suggested last week that in eternity, undoubtedly, we will share accounts with each other, including with these people named here, of God's grace to us. These were real people. Well, now we come to the third point of chapter 10, and that is not just the repentance and the trials, but what's the end of this? It is divorce. Divorce. That's the solution for this problem of the intermarriage. So let me pause here just a moment then and give scriptural, some scriptural teaching with regard to marriage and divorce. Now, we know that marriage was the original human relationship before, of course, before the fall. It was to be between one man and one woman for life. Certain politicians and Supreme Court justices notwithstanding to the contrary, including politicians here in the state of Georgia, by the way. It was to be between one man and one woman for life. Jesus blessed the institution of marriage by his presence at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, where he had the first miracle, turning the water into wine. So what about divorce then? Well, divorce, of course, comes about because of a broken relationship, because of sin. But the point I want to make here is that divorce itself, as an instrument, as a tool, is not intrinsically sinful. It is merely the instrument of officially cutting the ties, like excommunication. So when the church exercises excommunication, when it cuts people off from the church, the excommunication is not sinful, but it's because of sin that the excommunication became necessary. Sin, or sinful conditions, are always necess- are, are always what lead up to divorce. Sin by one or both parties is why divorce does occur. Now, a person may justly sue for divorce in either one of two cases, adultery or willful desertion that cannot be remedied by church or state. Remarriage is permitted for the innocent party and at least some theologians would suggest upon repentance may be for the guilty party as well. Nevertheless, let us be clear that divorce is out of the ordinary. It was nev- things were never intended to be that way. Even after the fall, how was, how was a marriage to end? By the death of one of the parties. That's why you take vows till death us do part. Even where divorce is allowed, namely for reasons of adultery or willful desertion, even where divorce is allowed by the innocent party to pursue, it is never commanded. But here, apart from desertion or adultery, divorce is being commanded. Why? Why this extraordinary 
and unique plan of action. Well, let me suggest three themes in terms of this. Propriety, power, and priority. Propriety, power, and priority. These are, in other words, what I'm suggesting here is that what we have here in Ezra 10 is a somewhat unique situation that contrasts with what we would normally expect, for example, in New Testament times. So first of all, propriety, whether they were proper. These marriages were not contracted with believers, but with unbelievers. Now, my friends, we know that it is a sin for a believer to marry someone who is not in the faith, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It is a disciplinable offense. And so let me just say, Young person, older person, if you were a, mem- a member of the church, a professing believer, and you decide to marry someone who is not, the church properly should discipline you for that sin. It is a disciplinable offense. But even at that, even if you went ahead and married someone who is not a Christian, that does not mean that that would automatically dissolve the marriage. You can't go back, if you will. You must remain married to that person uh, with regard to whom you have taken vows. Now, in the Old Testament, then, these marriages were illegal to start with. They, therefore, could be considered null and void, especially because it wasn't just the church you're dealing with here, but it was also the state. But this fact, that is say the commonwealth of Israel, but this fact does not really, does not fully explain what is going on here. It's an aspect of it, that there is something improper in terms of these marriages. It's one aspect, but it's not the full explanation, but propriety. Secondly, power, power. In terms of the power of the Holy Spirit and the manifestation of that power. Now, the Old Testament, as we know, tended to look inward, tended tended to be introverted. And there were very few conversions of those outside of Israel and very little outreach at that time. The nations were then blinded by Satan, deceived by Satan. And this was true on a personal and individual level as well. And so everything was inward-focused, in terms of of Israel, in terms of the church. But in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is poured out generously, if you will, abundantly. We have the fullness of joy of the Holy Spirit today in the New Testament, symbolized by those musical instruments that are now obsolete for worship, but those musical instruments back in chapter 3. Why? because we have the reality today. We have not just, we don't need the symbol, we have the power of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 14, in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 14, Paul writes, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. And it's, that's why, he says, but if the, un, 
if don't don't as long as the unbeliever is willing to abide with you, don't separate, don't get a divorce, remain married to that one who is the unbeliever, because who knows, but that the Spirit of God working through you may indeed have an impact and lead to the conversion of your uh, of the uh, spouse who is not a believer. And so this means then that there is far greater effectiveness in home conversions today than there was in the Old Testament. That's not to say that there were no conversions of believers in the, in the Old Testament. We think of Ruth the Moabitess, Naaman the leper, Rahab the harlot. Nevertheless, those conversions were relatively rare. But again, this is not totally satisfying, is it? It's an aspect. Propriety, power, priority. Priority. Now, some of y'all know that I occasionally give railroad uh, illustrations, so let me do that again, if I may, today. Back over 100 years ago, California citrus fruit trains, before the days of modern refrigeration, had to get through because otherwise the fruit would spoil. And if a local freight derailed and blocked the tracks, that slow train might be thrown over the cliff in order to clear the tracks for that fruit express. That express had absolute priority due to the preciousness of the cargo. And that's, let me suggest, what we have here. There are two perspectives on this idea of priority. You all know about priority mail. It takes priority. There's the objective, which is God's perspective, and there's the subjective, which is man's perspective. So in terms of God's perspective and the priority, we see the preservation of the Holy Seed. We see the preservation of the covenant community. And God is the one who actually brought about that preservation. And one of the ways in which he did that was by means of these divorces, so that the covenant community would not be polluted. But there's also a subjective side to it in terms of priority. And this has to do and I'm going to step on some toes here possibly, but bear with me. This has to do with viewing Christ as more important than your family. Now, all through Jesus' life, this is a recurring theme. You remember at one point he was asked when, when people said, your mother and your, your brethren are, are waiting for you. And he says, who is my mother and who are my brethren? I have a priority to go about in terms of the kingdom. Or as we read today from Luke chapter 14, verses 25 and following. Luke 14, 25 and following. We find that same theme, do we not? Where Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yea, and his own life also. He cannot 
be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. There's a priority, and it's focused on Christ. And this theme, this priority, this idea that Christ is more important than your family is most pointed with regard to the birth of Jesus. My friends, it was not a silent night on which Christ was born. Heaven and earth were shaken. The heavens were rent, allowing for those those heavenly angels to appear. It was one of those rare occurrences in which God was sending a heavenly messenger And my friends, the mortals in that little town of Bethlehem were having a hard time sleeping because those crazy shepherds were waking up the whole village. Those people knew that God had visited them with a most awesome and astounding miracle. But what was their reaction? What was their reaction when Herod slaughtered their babies. Look at Matthew 2. Matthew 2, verse 16 and following. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. My friends, there was nothing cute about Jesus being a baby. It was an act of war. It was an act of war by which heaven was sending, the messenger was sending the Savior into this world. And Satan and those who follow him were reacting violently to that. As we read in Revelation chapter 12, where where The dragon, Satan, tries to destroy this male child through whom would come salvation. But my friends, what was the reaction of the people of that district? They refused to be comforted. God does not mind tears. He created tear ducts. He treasures up every tear in a bottle. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And this idea of stoicism, like Spock in Star Trek, you know, no emotion, only logic, is not Christianity. But the point here is not the sorrow that the people had. The point here was the bitterness. And it was that they viewed their children as the most precious thing in contrast to the one who is the Christ. In other words, 
it was idolatry. They regarded their children's lives as more important than that of the Messiah. They regarded physical life as more important than eternal life. The people in Jesus' day were to call to mind the words of Jeremiah 31 and be comforted. But most likely, many of them were not. Now, by God's grace, the people in Ezra's day were willing to make that sacrifice and visibly to demonstrate their priority. Undoubtedly, there were tears and heartache. And there's no reason to believe that they left these wives and children without support. But there was still pain and separation. Shechaniah, who helped Ezra take the lead here, uh, was, if you look at verse 26, was also involved in this sin, his family. My friends, in a sense, this theme of the priority, the supremacy of the gospel and the coming of the kingdom runs through all of Ezra in terms, in subjectively, the people as they came back to the land had to give up possessions, security, luxury, convenience in order to go back to the promised land. They were even willing to give up their families, leaving some behind and here, here in Ezra 10, divorcing others. And objectively, again, we see the priority. For God is the one who brought all these things about according to his plan. He's the one who turned the hearts of kings and turned the hearts of his people to himself. The state, the pagan state, served the church as prophesied by Isaiah in terms of the kings and queens being the nursing fathers and nursing mothers of the church and supporting the church. My friends, God made sure that nothing could derail the coming of Messiah. That's the priority that we see here. And so I have two points of application. The first is this. Rejoice in the great mercy of God as seen in this book of Ezra. Rejoice in the great mercy of God. Preserving a godly line. Enabling the restoration of the temple and of worship so that Christ could come. Providing a way of escape with regard to God's fierce anger. What we have here is in this book, we could say it this way, it's the gospel according to St. Ezra. And so secondly then, what will be your response to him? In a moment we will sing from Psalm 73. Yet evermore I am with thee. Thou holdest me by thy right hand. 
by my right hand, and thou, even thou, my guide shalt be. Thy counsel shall my way command, and afterward, in glory bright, shalt thou receive me to thy sight. For whom have I in heaven but thee? None else on earth I long to know. My flesh may faint and weary be, my heart may fail and heavy grow. With strength doth God my heart restore. He is my portion evermore. They perish that are far from thee. Lo, in their lewdness they shall die. But surely it is good for me that unto God I should draw nigh. I refuge take in God the Lord, that all thy works I may record. Is that your attitude today? Is that your attitude? Can you say that truly? Whom have I in heaven but thee? None else on earth I long to know. And after the benediction, we'll be singing Psalm 126. The Lord brought Zion's exiles back. We were as men that dreamed. Our tongue was filled with melody. Our mouth with laughter teemed. Though bearing forth the precious seed, the reaper sowing grieves, tears, weeping, sorrow. He doubtless shall return again and bring with joy his sheaves. The people in Ezra were on a pilgrimage back to the Holy Land as a picture of being on a pilgrimage to heaven. And that's what we are. Amen. We please stand for prayer. Our Father, we acknowledge the sorrows of this life, the ups and downs, the difficulties, the heartaches, the gut-wrenching things that we experience many times. We know our Father is because of our sin condition, but we also recognize our Father that we have hope. There is hope for us. There is hope. And it's precisely because of the Lord Jesus. And so we thank thee, Father, that thou didst preserve thy covenant community. And we thank thee that Jesus was born and protected in order to die for us. And so, Father, we pray that by thy grace we would have the proper priorities, that we would love thee above all else, even our families. And yes, Lord, as Jesus said, even our own lives. Give us that grace, O God, on our pilgrim way from this veil of tears 
to eternal joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.